You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. If you keep your Bibles open to Genesis 6, that's where we'll be spending most of our time today. And kids, there are sermon notes available for you, uh, and I believe you get to choose a treasure if you uh, fill those out, and I'll meet you over at the Kids Zone after the service uh, to take a look at those. Have you ever wondered what would happen if Superman was evil? What if he had all that superpower but had no compulsion to do good, but rather wanted to do evil in the world? Brandon Sanderson, in his series, The Reckoners, explores this premise in a trilogy of novels where a cosmic event has caused certain people, certain individuals around the world to gain superpowers, but rather than using those powers for good, they use them to enslave people and for their own benefit and to establish their own kingdoms. And when we read Genesis chapter 6, it, it seems like something similar is happening There are powerful figures who are exerting control over the world, but not for good, for evil. This was the temptation that that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, that they would become like gods. In our context, maybe he would tempt us that you will have superpowers. If you rebel against God's authority... The promise, the the empty promise, the lie that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve is you can be in charge. You can rule. And under the Christian worldview, this is the reason that there is pain and evil and suffering in our world. And by Genesis chapter 6, it appears that the pain and evil and suffering in the world are winning. Look at verse 11 of Genesis 6. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. Pervasive wickedness and violence in the earth and also powerful wickedness and violence. Look at verse four of Genesis six. In those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. Now, there's lots of speculation about who the sons of God were. Maybe they were fallen angels that were taking human women as wives, or maybe they were the offspring of the seed of the woman, those who were loyal to God and his purpose, who were intermarrying with those who were loyal to the serpent and his purposes in the world. Or some believe that they were powerful human rulers, perhaps empowered by evil spirits, people with extraordinary power, extraordinary control in their kingdoms. We have to keep in mind as we wrestle with this, the, the text doesn't really tell us who the sons of God are, but we need to keep in mind that the spiritual and physical realms in the biblical worldview are not two separate entities, but they're very intertwined and they affect one another. In fact, in verse 3, I think we have a little bit of a clue where God describes these beings as flesh. And I don't think it just means that they have a physical body, although that's part of it. It's a reminder that they are not God. In spite of their extraordinary power, they're still not God. And while it appears that they have become superhuman, God is indicating that they have, in fact, become less than fully human. 
Because in the biblical worldview, to be fully human is to live under God's authority and to live for God's purposes in the world. And when humans rebel against that and when they set themselves up as the autonomous rulers in the world, when they glorify their own power and re redefine right and wrong rather than what God says, I get to decide what's right and wrong, they become less than human. In other places in scripture, they're described as beasts. Here, I believe God calls them flesh less than human. And I think we're meant to understand that we live in similar circumstances today. Jesus compared the time of Noah to the time just before Jesus will return. And specifically says that people will be living their lives as normal, completely ignorant and oblivious to the judgment that is impending. But more broadly than that, that we continue to live in an age of flesh and beasts just as Noah did. An age where humans have set themselves up as the autonomous ultimate authority in the world, where the moral life is described as being true to yourself doing what you believe is right. And the problem is, if we're honest with ourselves, even if that was what is moral, even if morality truly was just doing what is true to yourself, we can't live up to even that standard. How many times have you disappointed yourself? So many. We live in a time where humans glorify their own power, I believe this is why our politics have become so desperate and divisive because we're looking for our politicians, not the other party's politicians, but our politicians to act like gods. They're going to save us. They're the rescuer. If you read apocalyptic books or watch apocalyptic movies, it celebrates almost exclusively the ingenuity and power of the human imagination. We can in fact, we must rescue ourselves. And it's not new. This is the same story if you look at the other uh, flood myths that are in ancient Near East religion. It, the story is the same. It's the gods who are bringing judgment and they've overstepped and now humans have to rescue themselves. This is not the story of Genesis. See, understanding the biblical worldview and applying it to our present reality indicates that we have not progressed as humans by doing these things. We have become less than human. The result is not human progress, but human regress. We act as flesh. We look like beasts. And in the context of this account in Genesis 6, we see evidence of it in the way that women were being treated as less than human, but merely as objects for the gratification of powerful men. And then Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. The recipients of the book of Hebrews were facing similar circumstances. They're described in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 33. Sometimes, again, in the context, it's because of your faith, you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten, and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. How? 
How could the recipients of Hebrews maintain joy in the midst of oppression, violence, and injustice? How could Noah continue to trust and walk with God in the face of total corruption and violence? Because Noah and the recipients of Hebrews knew God. They could remain faithful because God remains faithful, always. It's really the point of Hebrews 11. It's not so much, look at all these great people throughout the biblical history with great faith. Be inspired by them. Be like them. It's more, look at how God was faithful to all of these people. You can remain faithful because God remains faithful always. And we see evidence of God's faithfulness here in Noah's story. First, God is faithful to judge and restore. The the biblical pattern indicates that God will always confront the beasts and establish his authority and kingdom. We see it when we read through the book of Daniel and Daniel's visions. We hear it in Jesus' teachings. We see it again when we read the book of Revelation and we see it here in the story of Noah, verse six. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them humans and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. Specifically, he's going to destroy them through a flood, cleansing the world, cleansing the creation, resetting by reminding the recipients of Hebrews about Noah, the author of Hebrews is reminding them that their present reality is not their permanent reality. God will always confront the beasts and their systems of oppression and corruption and violence. They will not be allowed to rule forever. God will reestablish his kingdom and his rule on earth. Jesus promised to return, and Jesus always keeps his promises. You can remain faithful because God remains faithful always. God's judgment is evidence of God's faithfulness, and it's evidence of God's grace. I know it doesn't seem gracious to the perpetrators of violence and corruption, but it does seem very gracious to the victims of violence and oppression. My wife and I the other day went and saw the movie Sound of Freedom, and at one point in the movie, the agents tackle one of the perpetrators of human trafficking, and there was somebody in the audience who clapped at that. And I'm sure that the perpetrator of human trafficking didn't feel like this was very gracious, but I'm equally sure that the victims of human trafficking found justice to be grace and good. God's faithfulness is seen in God's judgment and restoration of his rule. God's faithfulness is also seen in God's grace to Noah, verse eight. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Favor is grace. God didn't respond to Noah because Noah was righteous. Noah became righteous because God granted him grace. This is the end of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. He received the righteousness that comes by faith or faithfulness. 
It's not Noah's character that resulted in God's grace. It's that God initiated with grace. Noah responded in faith, which resulted in the character that's described in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. If you were here last week, maybe you'll remember that Nico said that when, when you have a sliver of grace, or sorry, a sliver of faith, it covers your whole story. And this is what's happening here. What the author says about Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, is not the reason that God has grace on him. It's faith exhibited as faithfulness or obedience to God that is read back over the entirety of Noah's life and read forward in faith fact, over the rest of Noah's life. It's a summary statement because of Noah's obedience and response to God's grace that is placed at the beginning of our story. But, I, but still, and I think it's significant, after Noah found favor in the Lord's eyes. That's first. It's not that Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person on, on earth, and he walked in close fellowship with God. So God rescued him from the flood. It's Here's evidence that Noah was a righteous man who responded to God's favor by walking in close fellowship with God. The description of Noah in verse 9 and, and the rest of the story is a description of a person who has received grace. It does not describe the necessary conditions in order to receive it. Do you get the distinction? This is really important. I want you to understand it. God's faithfulness is seen in his grace to Noah, finding favor in him, and then providing a way of escape from the judgment. Notice he doesn't tell Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth, but I really like you, so I hope you figure out a way to escape the judgment. I hope you're a good swimmer. No, he doesn't say that, right? He does not entrust the means of salvation to human imagination. God tells Noah exactly what to do. Build a barge, build a huge boat. And God tells Noah how to do it. He gives him the dimensions, tells him where to put the door, tells him how many decks there should be on it, gives him which materials he should use to build it. This is a great salvation. And as great as this salvation is for Noah, it points to an even greater salvation yet to come. Noah's rescue was not a complete rescue. Noah and his line were still corrupted by flesh. And you'll see that if you continue to read the rest of Noah's story. They still acted like beasts. Right after the flood, the beast in Noah and his sons rears its ugly head again. But Noah's rescue points to an even greater, more complete rescue, greater salvation. Because in Jesus, God has done for us even more than he's done for Noah. He doesn't just give us the dimensions and tells us what materials to use and then gets us to build our own means of salvation. He did all the work to escape the coming judgment when Jesus comes back to restore his kingdom. You simply need to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Or as Paul puts it to the Philippian jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Watchman Nee, in his commentary in the book of Ephesians, puts it this way. Christianity does not begin with a big do, but a big done. This is grace. God provides a way 
to escape the coming judgment. And then God does everything necessary to create that means of salvation for you. He becomes fully human, not corrupted by flesh. He doesn't become beastly. It could be said of him the same as it was said as Noah. He was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God, except it wouldn't just be a sliver of faith at one point in time that is read over the rest of Jesus' story. This is the totality of Jesus' story. And despite this, he dies, submits to death, and rises again to completely defeat the powers of sin and death and destruction and corruption and and violence so that in him we too can be fully human again. And all you have to do is, is believe. All you have to do is respond to that grace in faith. This is the greater salvation that Noah's rescue points to. And so the author of Hebrews asks the question, the rhetorical question, how will we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And the implied answer is you won't. Jesus is the way. No one escapes the coming judgment except through faith in Jesus. There is no rescue without grace. Noah's life testifies that you can remain faithful because God remains faithful always. Noah's life testifies to God's faithfulness seen in judging and restoring his rule. Noah's life testifies to God's faithfulness in graciously providing a way of escape from God's judgment. And Noah's life testifies to God's faithfulness in graciously giving people time to turn from their corruption, their violence, pride, and sin and turn towards God. See, God is patient. He he doesn't delight in destroying people. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent and escape judgment. We see that in in Noah's history. God gives them an 120-year warning that judgment is coming, Genesis 6, verse 3. It must have taken Noah years to cut down all of the necessary trees, transport them to the work site, make them into planks, and then join those planks together to make this massive barge. The people had time. It took seven days to load all of the animals. Genesis chapter seven, verse 10. You'd think they'd recognize something extraordinary was happening. The people had time. God gives lots of opportunity for people to repent and escape judgment because God is faithful and we see that in his patience towards people. And God is still patient today. Often, I wish that Jesus would come right now, come quickly, especially when I'm overwhelmed by all of the evil and division, disease, corruption and violence and injustice in the world. Jesus, come quickly. And it's not wrong to wish that or pray that. Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. At the end of Revelation, Jesus promises, yes, I'm coming soon, to which the author, John, responds, and we respond with him, amen, come, Lord Jesus. And yet, Jesus isn't being slow in keeping his promise. He's being patient. He's giving people an opportunity to repent to be saved. So Noah is one of the great crowd of witnesses that surrounds us, described in Hebrews 12, as we run our own life, our own race of life and faith. 
and Noah's in the crowd giving testimony to God's faithfulness. God is faithful. He will judge evil and restore his rule. Keep running. God is faithful. He graciously provides salvation. He graciously provides rescue. Keep looking to Jesus. God is faithful. He patiently gives opportunity for people to reject their beastly self and turn to God and be made fully human. And he's in the process of doing that in your life as you respond to him in faithfulness. Keep running. And then Noah responds, invites us to respond to God's faithfulness in three ways. And kids, I know that there's only one way stated in your notes. If you get the other two ways, you get 800 bonus points each. <laughs> I'm not sure that you can cash them in for anything, but they, that's like 1,600 points. That's a lot, so that's great. <laughs> Noah invites us to respond to God's faithfulness by repenting and receiving God's grace. Stop trusting yourself to rescue yourself. Stop trusting yourself to decide what is good and what is evil. Stop trying to be true to yourself. The lie of the enemy is that you can be gods. You can be superheroes with superhuman powers, more than human. And the reality is that allying yourself with the enemy makes you flesh, beasts, and even if you could decide for yourself what's right and wrong, the reality is you can't even live up to your own standard of right and wrong, let alone God's. Only Jesus can rescue you. Only Jesus can make you truly and fully human. Only Jesus is Lord and King. Noah also invites us to respond to God's faithfulness by being faithful. You should, you can remain faithful because God remains faithful always. As Myron reminded us already this morning, it begins with God. It always begins with God. All through the record of Noah's life, we find phrases like, Noah walked in close fellowship with God, verse 9, or Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. We see that repeated through his story. So Watchman Nee is right. The gospel doesn't begin with a big do, but with a big done. But as he further writes in his commentary, it continues with a call to walk with God, to follow Jesus. This is our response. Once we receive Jesus' grace, we respond to that grace in faithfulness by walking with God, to do, doing what Jesus, or Jesus instructs us to do, even if it's something like building a massive barge in a dry, landlocked region where it's utterly inconceivable that there would ever be enough water to float it. Bruce Waltke in his commentary on Genesis says, to serve the interests of creation, their neighbors... <clears throat> and their king, the righteous, or we might say the faithful, are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of others. This was Noah. He disadvantaged himself for the advantage of, cre of the interests of creation and his king. Your faithful response to God's faithfulness may require you to risk yourself, your life, your reputation, to risk your safety, to reach out to the vulnerable, in the face of beasts and giants, to continue to do good, walk justly, and live humbly. You can do it. You can remain faithful, not because you have the strength in and of yourself, but because God remains faithful always. Noah's faithful response to God saves him and his family, and... In Hebrews 11, by his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world. 
Now, I have a concern that we read this phrase and we think that it means that our faithfulness to God means speaking God's judgment and enacting God's judgment on his behalf in our world. Notice how Noah's faith condemned the world. 2 Peter 2 verse 5 says, Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment that was coming. That's part of our faithful response to God's faithfulness. But the historical record and the biblical pattern is clear. God is the judge. Not Noah, not you. Genesis chapter 7 verse 16, Noah and his family and all of the animals enter the barge and then the Lord closed the door behind him. It wasn't Noah's job to decide who was in and who was out. It wasn't Noah's job to decide who would be saved and who wouldn't. It wasn't Noah's job to decide even when the door would close and when it was too late. The Lord took responsibility for all of that. It was God's decision and God's action. Noah's job was to be faithful, to be obedient to what God had told him and to trust God to be who God was. And Noah's response condemns the world because it demonstrates what a faithful response to God looks like in contrast to the beastly behavior of people. And it demonstrates that the only way to be saved is to receive God's grace. Our job is to respond to God's faithfulness like Noah. Faithfulness. And we can remain faithful because God remains faithful always. Noah responds with faithfulness to God's faithfulness, and Noah also responds to God's faithfulness in worship. The flood recedes. God instructs Noah to leave the barge and release the animals, and Noah builds an altar. It's the first time an altar is mentioned in the Bible. The account of God's judgment ends with the rescued community sacrificially worshiping the rescuer. And the account of God's judgment in Revelation ends the same way. Revelation reminds us that God will ultimately and finally confront the beast and reestablish his rule and his kingdom forever. And when he does, those of us who have responded in faithfulness to his grace will join a crowd so loud that it sounds like the roar of rushing water singing, praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. And the truth is we don't have to wait until that day to sing those words. We can sing those words by faith today. And while we wait for their ultimate fulfillment, we can remain faithful. We must remain faithful because God remains faithful always. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.